welcome. We are especially glad that you're here. We hope you feel like our uh, expected welcome guest in our home. And uh, like Scott said, don't be afraid to fill out that Connect card. We are not going to bug you this week. We really, as he said, just want to thank you. for being here. Uh, we've, we've had a, a, a great uh, little go at it here with Job. Uh, we've been in this series on Job, uh, trusting God's heart when you can't trace his hand. And we've dealt with some really powerful stuff. Uh, we've talked a lot about suffering and pain, and, and uh, it, it's, it's been great. I hope you've enjoyed this series. And uh, I want us just to jump right into it. We left Job uh, last week basically at this point where he's, uh, you know, kind of demanding that God explain himself. You know, remember, he, uh, he lost everything, chapters 1 and 2, and then he has this series of, you know, friends that come and visit him, remember, with friends like those who needs enemies, right? And they uh, basically question, you know, why Job was going through such pain and suffering. And their answer basically was that, well, Job, you reap what you sow, you know, you must have a problem because God wouldn't do this unless there's some problem with you. And so now Job basically wants God to, to speak. He's upset. You know, why in the world, God, did you allow me to you know, go through so much pain, and, and why am I the victim, you know, of, of all this suffering and, and injustice? Because Job felt like, you know, he didn't deserve it. And so he demands an audience with God, but uh, for a period of time, there is no reply from God. Uh, chapter 30, it says this, I cry out to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand up and, and you merely you know, look at me. You don't say anything, in other words. Now, my guess is that most of the people here in this room have felt like that before. That be- whatever it is you've gone through, whatever sh- hardship, whatever suffering, whatever pain, you- you've been angry. And you've been angry at God. You've been angry at God for allowing the hurt. You demand an explanation. You know, even though you might have heard the verses that talk about, well, you know, God's ways are not your ways. You're like, well, who cares? You know, I want to know, why am I going through this? And remember last week, we basically said, hey, it's okay. Believe it or not, God's love for you is big enough to even handle that. Big enough to handle your, your, your hurt and your anger, even towards him. And so, but a lot of times we, we demand answers. We want to know, you know, why these broken relationships have happened. We want, to, we want to understand, you know, explain to me why I'm going through this financial difficulty, why these people in my life have passed away, why, why are there wars, why are children suffering? And so just like Job, my guess is everybody in this room at some point has said, God, why? You know, where are you? Where have you been? So in chapter 38, finally, uh, God speaks And he speaks directly to Job. Listen to verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. And he said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you. And you will answer me. Now, uh, God appears. And he basically says, okay, Job, you ready? You challenge me, now it's my turn. You know, and, and really what he's saying is, you know, Job, who, who are you, okay? You know, don't forget here, you're created, I'm the creator. I'm all-knowing, you have very, very limited understanding. In fact, he basically says, Job, all of your arguments, he says, they're really words without knowledge. 
you know, you, you can speak all you want, but you really don't see the whole scope of what's going on behind the scenes. In other words, it, it sounds kind of ridiculous. Now, I love this next phrase that God uses. He says, Job, brace yourself like a man. Now, that sounds pretty tough. In fact, it's really tougher than it sounds because in our more modern, cleaner English translation, we kind of clean it up a little bit. In fact, if you have the King James Version, it actually says this, gird up now thy loins like a man. Okay, now I don't know if you know what he's saying there, but God is, is basically saying, okay, Job, you want to go toe-to-toe with me? Strap on your cup and man up. Okay, that's what, that's what God is saying. He's saying, okay, you've had your turn to speak. Now it's my turn. Now, the reality is, let, let's, let's be a little honest with one another. Let's lay it out on the table. We've all said stupid things before, right? I mean, everybody in this room, you've said, you know, words without knowledge. You've spoken without really having a complete understanding of the situation. Uh, we've all done that. In fact, you know, today, honestly, sometimes I feel sorry for celebrities. I mean, not really, but sometimes you do. Because, you know, I mean, how would you like it if... Everything you ever said was recorded, you know, and, and uh, you know, there's a, you know, an iPhone in your face for everything you do, everything you say, every, every outfit that you put on in the morning and, you know, go to get gas in or whatever, and everybody sees it and everybody hears it. Well, in fact, in fact here's a few um, uh, famous dumb quotes from celebrities, words without knowledge. Uh, Mariah Carey, love her Christmas album, but here's what she said one time, um, whenever I watch TV, and see those poor, starving kids all over the world, I can't help but cry. I mean, I'd love to be skinny like that, but not with all those flies and death and stuff. Okay, she said that. Now, you've said some stupid things before. Okay, um, Michael Vick, right? Great athlete. Um, here's a quote from him. Um, I have two weapons, my arm, my legs, and my brain. Okay. Anyway. Think about that. Some of you will get that later. Okay. Um, and then who can forget Jessica Simpson's famous quote? Uh, I know it's called tuna, but it says chicken of the sea. Okay. So I don't know about you, but again, you know, if somebody were following you around with a microphone, they'd catch some pretty dumb things. In fact, I have said some stupid, stupid things before. I really have. In fact, especially as a husband. Um, <laughs> Especially as a parent, you know, you know what I'm talking. Some of you guys, come on now, you've been there, right? You've said some dumb, dumb things that you regret. Probably the worst thing I ever said. In fact, I'm not even sure that I've shared this like from the pulpit before. I, some of you might have heard this story individually, maybe. I was probably too ashamed to ever say it out loud, but I've grown now. So anyway, um, the worst thing I ever said to Janet was probably right after. Uh, Lydia was born. So, you know, we're new parents, and we haven't been married that long. And uh, anyway, I came home one day, and I found Janet uh, in tears. I mean, it was obvious she'd been crying all day. She's very, very upset. And, you know, being the loving, understanding husband, you know, that I was at that time, um, I did my best to try to, you know, console her. And so I asked, you know, what was wrong? You know, obviously you've been crying and you're upset. So we sat down and, and she began to explain to me what had happened earlier in the day, how uh, she was changing Lydia's diaper uh, on our bed. 
And uh, she said, she said, Chris, and you could, she felt so terrible. She felt guilty, even though she's starting to tell me. I'm like, what, honey, what happened? And she said, I, I promise you, I turned my head for just a second. And you, some of you know what happened, right? You've been there. Lydia rolled off the bed onto the floor and, uh, and you know, started crying. She, you know, she hit her head and she started crying. Now, before you really freak out, don't, I mean, like, back then, like, we didn't even have, like, a bed bed. We had, like, you know, we, all we had was, like, a bed frame and, you know, a mattress on it. So it wasn't like it was six feet off the ground, okay? So she did fall off the bed, but she kind of, you know, kind of slid off to the bed, onto the floor. But, you know, she hit herself, and she cried. Of course, Janet started crying. Janet felt terrible. Uh, I mean, it was just this terrible thing, and, and she'd been crying all day, worried about it, upset about it. She, like, even called, like, the, the, our pediatrician, you know, and um, so being the loving, comforting, wise man of God that I am, I proceeded to say the worst thing I have ever said in 27 years of marriage to my wife, uh, the worst thing I could have ever said in that situation. Now, trying to diffuse the situation, stupid mistake number one was, I, I tried to be funny, okay, which was not wise. And I, here's what I said. I'll just say it. Well, if she grows up retarded, <laughs> at least now we'll know why. <laughs> so, okay, now I know some of you are already ready to walk out the door and leave Coastal. Who is this mighty man of God that would say such things? And um, so needless to say, I have long since repented and uh, begged for forgiveness. And, uh, you know, not only was it the wrong thing to say, I know it was the politically incorrect thing to say. Even though my name is PC, it was wrong. I know it. So uh, anyway, don't send me an email. Don't write it on the back of your Connect card. But, my, but you've said dumb things, right? Come on. Okay, not like that. Have you never done anything? No, Pastor, you've never done anything like that. But anyway, here's my guess. You know, if we're all honest, if somebody followed you around with a microphone, just like Job, just like Mariah Carey, we'd hear some stupid things. Now, here's my guess. In our sinful pride, I think we also say some pretty absurd things to God. I mean, they got to sound absolutely ridiculous in, in his mind, in his ears. You know, you know we'll, we'll puff up and go, man, God's got a lot of explaining to do. Really? You know? Or, or you know, like, uh, uh, God, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. Um, well, Job, you know, again, the Bible says he was upright, blameless, and yet he speaks some words without knowledge, it says. And so God says, okay, you ready? You ready, Job? Let, let's go. Let me question you. And so then God asked Job a series of like 70 questions. How'd you like to be on the receiving end of that? And uh, verses four and four through six, it says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? 
in, in uh, the 38th chapter, basically it's all about the wonders of nature. And uh, verse 12, it says, have you ever given orders to the morning, shown the dawn its place? Verse 16, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? In other words, have you been to the bottom of the ocean, Job? No, I don't think so. I have. Verse 17, have the gates of death been shown to you? Verse 24, what is the way to the place the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds scatter over the earth? Verse 35, do you, Job, send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. And so Job gets grilled. And, and God's not finished. In fact, then in chapter 39, he turns to the wonders of the animal kingdom. And it says, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do, do you know the time they give birth? He's like, hey, Job, by the way, I'm the one who designed the reproductive system. You don't even understand the reproductive system of a goat. You know, you, you've never been there. You don't know what happens. I watch over everything. And you challenge me? And then he goes on to say, like, uh, verse 9, can you design a wild ox with its strength, and yet it's capable of being tamed by man? Or do you ever think about the strength, he says, of an ostrich wings or the splendor of a stork? I designed those creatures. Verse 13, do you ever look at a horse, Job? It's such a magnificent, beautiful, strong animal. Verse 19, do you give the horse its strength, clothe its neck with its flowing mane? No, I don't think so, but I did. In verse 27, he says, picture uh, an eagle. He says, does, does the eagle soar at your command? Verses 28 and 29, he dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is his stronghold. From there, he seeks out his food. His eyes detect it from afar. In other words, hey, I gave an eagle, Job, by the way, its ability to fly, and I designed its eyesight so they could see its prey hundreds and hundreds of yards away. Did you do that? In verse four, or chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, it says, The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. God says to Job, What right do you have to question my justice? Job, what are your qualifications? And so God lets Job have it. And then finally, in verses 3 and 5, it says this. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, and I have no answer twice. I will say no more. In other words, I spoke, and I kept speaking. I put my foot in my mouth. I'm going to shut up now. And so again, now, don't misunderstand what's happening here. God's love for you and for me, it is big enough to handle our anger and our doubt. But here, God says, okay, now, I've, I've taken all that, but I want you to really think this through. And so Job finally comes to his senses, and he actually realizes, hey, you know what? I've been out of line and way out of my league. And I really don't see the big picture, and I don't know everything. Now, in chapter 40, the focus now is on the character of God. Listen to this, verses 6 through 14. And then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And again, he says, brace yourself like a man. I'm going to question you, and I want you to answer me. Will you discredit my justice? 
Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at the proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust altogether. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your right hand can save you. Basically, what God is saying here to Job is like, okay, Job, you, you don't like the way I'm running the universe. Okay, start one on your own. And then in your creation, I want you to punish the proud and, and punish the wicked immediately. And then I want you to see what kind of world you'll end up with. You know, take away all freedom. And then people are just going to serve you out of selfish reasons. Now, if you can work everything out, then I'll admit that I need you, and you don't need me. Now, I think there's some lessons here that we can learn in, in dealing with suffering and pain and how God responds eventually to Job. Here's lesson number one. God ultimately is in charge of the universe. So develop a servant's heart. You know, the simple fact that, that we often miss, but it is so important, the universe doesn't revolve around you. And it doesn't revolve around me. You know, we are the creation. He is the creator. We're his servants. I love the opening line of uh, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. It really sums this up perfectly. He says, it's not about you. You know, once you really come to terms with that, once you accept that, that ultimately you're not the one who is in charge of the universe, then all of a sudden your attitude changes a little bit about the situation. You know, let's say, for example, that um, all of us were in the reserves and the commander has called us up and uh, we're going to go to um, Afghanistan, uh, Iran, Iraq. So we're going to go somewhere in the Middle East and all of a sudden you get upset and you don't like it. And you're like, man, I don't like the hot weather over there. I don't like the, you know, I don't like the uniform that I'm going to have to wear. Um, I don't like a sandstorm. I feel very uncomfortable. It, it might endanger my life. I want to talk to the man in charge because I, I have other plans. Now, do you think that anybody in charge would get in touch with you and say, oh, we are so sorry that you've been inconvenienced. Oh, you want to go to Hawaii? Let's work that out. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of no problem. Whatever you want to do, we'll do it. Now, that would never happen, would it? Why? Because you're not in charge. And the army doesn't center around you. In fact, listen to this. It has a bigger purpose that supersedes your personal comfort. And so the reality is, yes, God, his love for you is so big, he can handle all of it. But at the end of the day, you and I don't get to say, well, I don't like this difficulty. I don't like this assignment. I don't like this situation because maybe, just maybe, his purposes are bigger than your preference. And our goal of life is not to live a pain-free life. The goal of life is not to have hardship. The goal of life is not to suffer or have pain. Ultimately, the goal of life is to glorify God. And when we understand that this is his world and we exist to glorify him and bring honor to him and lift up Jesus, then we have a different perspective. Then we might stop complaining a little bit. Here's lesson number two from the book of Job. 
God will provide answers in his time. Be willing to wait. He will provide answers. You know, if I were to ask, you know, all, we've all you know, been, been through this book of Job together. Many of you have been reading through it along the way. If I were to ask you, what, tell me about the book of Job. What, you know, what would you say? Some of you might talk about, man, all the terrible sufferings. And you remember all the things that Job went through in chapters 1 and 2. And, you know, so many terrible things happened to such a good man. And, uh, you know, maybe it shows us that, you know, that we're not exempt from pain either. And then some of you might say, well, he also had these friends who really weren't his friends. And they gave some very long, very boring speeches. And they tried to explain why he was suffering. And all they could come up with was, you reap what you sow. You must have done something wrong. But ultimately, if I were to say, hey, okay, yeah, all that happened in Job. But I want you to tell me why. Why? What is the reason? What does Job say is the reason for our suffering? What would you say? I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a very specific answer. Because one of the most notable things about the book of Job to me is really the absence of explanations. I mean, you wade your way through like 37 chapters, and then finally you get to chapter 38, and God shows up, and God speaks, and you're like, Finally, great, now God's going to you know, let us know why all this has happened. And basically, you know what God says? I'm God, you're not, I'm in charge, you're not. And that's it. I'm God and you're not. And you kind of, you know, you're kind of scratching your head in chapter 38 thinking, well, still, like, but why? Because we're human, we still, we still want to know. I can think of maybe a couple of reasons why we don't know. You know, maybe number one is because we're not capable of comprehending the answer. Maybe we're not. You know, maybe if God answered, the answer would be so compl complicated and so, you know, complex, involving so many centuries and the timeline so long and so many people all working together that he basically says, you know what? Trust me. Trust me. Wait until eternity. And I'll explain it. Maybe another reason we don't always have the answers is that it would ruin the test if we knew all the answers in advance. You know, a test is really not that helpful um, if you know all the answers in advance. As far as learning, as far as growing. Now, I realize that in school, we love it when the teacher says, hey, this is everything that's going to be where? What? on the test. I mean, man, we like tests like that because then all you got to do is what? Memorize the answers. You know, just focus on, you know, oh, wow, this is great. I don't have to read the book. I don't have to go back over the notes. Just the vocabulary, that's it. Then I will focus on that. And then, like, at the end of the day, what have you really learned about the subject? Not as much, really. And, and I think sometimes the life is like that, too. You know, we, we, you know, what if God said, hey, I'm going to allow you to go through whatever it is, this suffering, this hardship, this difficulty, but you need to know in advance that on such and such a date, it's all going to be done, everything's going to work out, you know, like maybe, you know, your child's going to be healed, financially everything's good, you're going to recover, on this date, at this time, in this way, it's all going to be over, it's all going to be done, but I've, I'm, I'm allowing this to happen right now so that it'll test your faith and really push you uh, to pray, to intensify your prayer life and your walk with God. My guess is, I don't think that would really happen. 
Because now that you know the answers, now that you know what's going to happen, it doesn't really motivate you to pray. It doesn't really test your faith. Because even though we don't like it, and none of us do, we grow and we learn through God's test because we don't know how the story ends. And that's one of the messages of Job, that the book of Job teaches us not to expect simple answers. And listen, Christians, don't give people simple answers because you don't know. People have million-dollar questions, and you're giving them, you know, you know, bumper sticker answers. The book of Job doesn't do that. You know, God gives us sometimes just enough information to trust him, but not so much that it doesn't require faith. You know, the apostle Paul, you know, go to the New Testament. Here's the guy who wrote like, you know, more than half of the New Testament. I mean, talk about a guy who probably had faith and had a strong walk with God. He's, he gets some sort of, you know, thorn in his flesh, some sort of problem. You know, we don't know really what it is, but he begs God. He prays, God, please take this away from me. Deliver me. Heal me. You know what God said? Nope. My grace is sufficient. And he never, he never really tells him why. He just says, trust me. God provides an answer in his time. And maybe it's not on the side of eternity. We got to be willing to wait. Now, here's the final chapter of Job, verses 1 through 5. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours will be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? And Job goes, it was me. I spoke about things I didn't understand. Too wonderful, too mysterious, too great for me to know. And you said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now I have eyes that have seen you. You know what Job's saying? And maybe this is part of the answer as well. God, I, I admit, because I have gone through this, I have a more intimate relationship with you now. One that I never would have had, had I not experienced this. And I see that now. And then in verse 6, Job added, therefore I despise myself, I repent in dust and ashes. Have you ever noticed that that is what happens to us? I mean, when God shows up, the closer we get to God, the more we are aware of who we are in comparison to him. The more we aware that we're, we're not worthy, that we are sinners, that we have messed up, that we have screwed up, the closer we get to his holiness and his great love, the more we are aware of who we are in comparison to him. By the way, that's the standard, right? It's not your neighbor, it's not your coworker, it's not me, it's not your parents, it's God. And if God's the standard, the more he shows up in our life, the more we are aware of him, the more we come to grips with who we are in comparison to him. And that's basically what happens to Job, and that happened all throughout scripture to people. Remember when God showed up to Adam and Eve, Adam hid. 
Abraham fell on the ground. Moses covered his face. Isaiah, the Bible says, cried out, repenting of his unclean lips. Saul of Tarsus fell to the ground. Job repents. Now, my, one of my questions, well, you know, what did Job repent of? I mean, because remember the first chapter of Job said that he was blameless and upright, so he probably didn't repent of, you know, his parenting or, you know, the way he handled his money. Um, what did he repent of? I I think maybe he repented of his attitude. I think maybe he repented of his limited understanding of who God is. And even though God's love for us is big enough to handle our complaining, I, I think he repented of his complaining. Did you know the word complain is found more times in the book of Job than any other book in the Bible? In fact, nearly one half of all the complaints in Scripture come from the mouth of Job. I think he recognized it. And so now, here we are at the very end of the story. Verse 10, chapter 42. After Job had prayed for his friends. That's interesting, right? You know what that is? That's a sign that he really had come to terms with it. That he had, he had made that right. You know, when you're able to pray for the very person that, you know, you're mad as hell at, that's a sign that, you know, he'd worked that through. So after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. And then verse 11, it says, All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. In other words, now his respect and honor has been restored. People are coming and recognizing what has happened. And, and in verse 12, there's this awesome accounting. You know, we, we, we began this, this series right here, actually, in the very beginning, saying, listen, believe it or not, you know, your story's not finished, and God wants to bless you. Now, it might not be in the way in which you and I understand blessing, but listen, God wants to bless your life. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So it says this in verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep. By the way, in the first chapter, he had 7,000 sheep. So now more than doubles. Um, 6,000 uh, well, uh, excuse me, again, 7,000 sheep, 6,000 camels. He had 3,000 in chapter 1, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkey, uh, donkeys. Again, he had 500 of each in chapter 1. It, it doubles. And then in verse 13 it says, and he also had seven sons and three daughters. Now, I know when you first read that because you're going through all this, and you're going, okay, well, before he had 10 kids, and now he just gets gets 10 more, you know, why didn't God, you know, double it and give him 20? Well, I'm not really sure that'd be a blessing, you know, 20 kids, and I'm not sure what Mrs. Job had to say about that, but, um, you know, some people would argue that might not be a blessing, you know, he becomes like the Duggars or something, but um, anyway, you know, but then, you know, I thought about this, maybe, just maybe, maybe he didn't really lose the other 10. Maybe they've just been transferred to heaven, and then when Job arrives, how many children will he have then? 20. But here's the final lesson. God will make all things right in the end. Just keep trusting him. Keep trusting him. Job remains faithful. Hebrews 11.6 says this, 
And, and by the way, this is a, kind of one of those verses where we always quote the first part. And I, it's great. It's, I mean, in fact, it says, and without faith, it's what? It is impossible to please God. And, and we quote that. We talk about that. Because anybody who comes to God has got to believe that he exists. You know, so we talk a lot about faith. But then listen to this. Not only do you need to believe that he exists, but you also need to believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We are to believe that God, that God does bless, that God rewards those who come after him. I think Job learned. I think he learned that life is hard, but that God is good and that he will bless you in the end. Now, sometimes... It might not be until eternity, until God settles the score. You know, sometimes God will bless you in this life as well as in eternity. The Bible says, weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I don't know when the morning is for you. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says this. In this, and by the way, this is, he's talking about our hope of heaven. In your hope of heaven, greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to what? You may have had to suffer, suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, which by the way is great, of more value than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, your faith may be proved genuine and it may result in the praise, glory, and honor when, when Jesus is revealed. In other words, again, it's not about you. It's about God. And, and sometimes we suffer in, on this side of eternity because our faith is being tested and it's being proven and, and, and so that God can get the glory. Listen, God does promise a new body. You know what? Did you know that God actually promises a life without pain? But not now. In fact, now he promises the opposite. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Now take heart because I've overcome the world. But God does promise me his presence in the midst of pain. You know, until the very last enemy is finally destroyed, we got to walk by faith. I'm going to get a new body one day, but not now. Do you know I'm going to get a mansion one day, but not yet. You know, Satan's most vicious, most terrible attack, it really wasn't against Job. It was against Jesus. When you talk about blameless and upright, Jesus was perfect. You see, if the standard is God, Jesus met the standard. He always bowed a thousand. He, he was perfect. He didn't deserve anything. He didn't deserve any pain. And yet, Satan's agents ridiculed him, falsely accused him, put him on trial. He took a beating, the likes of which you and I could hardly fathom or comprehend. Roman soldiers took railroad spikes and pounded them into his legs and into his arms, stuck a spear in his side, and hoisted him up on a cross, suspended him between heaven and earth, and crucified him. And Satan thought he had won. 
He thought it was over. But God took the cross, an instrument that Satan intended for evil, and he used it for something good. And I don't know what it is that you're going through. And I don't know the pain and the hurt that you've endured. But all I can tell you is that somehow, some way, our God has the miraculous ability to take even your pain and turn it around to your greatest victory. He used the cross, an instrument that Satan intended for evil, and he used it as a, as a tool of salvation and forgiveness and hope for all of humanity. Three days he was dead in a tomb, and then one day God in his mighty power rolled back that stone, and he said, Jesus, it's time to get up. And he rose him from the dead, and it was witnessed, listen to this, by hundreds of people who gave their life for it. Nobody does that for a lie. Nobody does that for a hoax. It was recorded in human history. We have more uh, recordings about the resurrection of Jesus than we have to verify Shakespeare. It is a fact. It is a truth of all human history. He rose from the dead, and God gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And because Jesus rose from the dead, those who put their faith and trust in him, you ready for this? Guess what? We will rise from the dead one day, and every wrong will be made right, and you will have a blessed life. What are you waiting on? Man, I don't know how you go through the stuff of life without the hope of eternity. Without making any kind of meaning to whatever it is you're going through today. Not only can you have meaning and hope and help, but you can have a home assured for you for all eternity. You can have it today. It is as mysterious and yet as real and as simple as a prayer. Because God already knows your heart. He's the only one that can see it. He just wants you to come to him. Bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for Job. Thank you for his faith. Thank you that he endured to the end. And God, thank you that your love for all of us is so great that you can handle our doubt and our anger, even when it's directed at you. But the truth is, God, we're, we're not in charge, and we don't know all things. We get into trouble when we think we do and we think that we are. It's not about us. It's about you. Help us to live with all of the ramifications of that, to trust you and to walk by faith. Father, today I want to pray for those who are hurting in this room. I pray they know they can find help in, in your son Jesus. I pray they know they can find hope and meaning in this life, that there is more to life. You say in your word that you planted eternity in the human heart. That means deep in our soul, we know there is more to life. Father, I pray for those who are ready to come home. It's as simple as just saying, Father, forgive me. I have made a mess of things. You sent your son Jesus to that cross to pay for my sin, my mistakes, my foul-ups. Father, today, 
I believe. I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he went to the cross to pay for my sin. I also believe that he rose from the dead and he is alive. No longer am I going to rebel against you or am I going to try to earn my salvation and become religious. God, I want a relationship with you today. I want to be your child. I want to be your friend. Thank you for accepting me today because of my faith in Jesus. And for the rest of my days, God, I just want to follow him. And Father, I pray for our church as help us to see people and situations more through your eyes than through ours. Help us to reach out to people when they are hurting and just simply point them to you. Help us not always to have to give, you know, explanations and, and reasons and answers, but help us simply to point people to Jesus. We love you, Father, and I pray this in his name. Amen.